Make sure you have this seven feasts of God's prophetic calendar in your hand and looking at it because we're going to have a compact lesson today, I'm telling you. You better put your thinking caps on. We're going to go fast. One of the things I had wanted to teach you, remember, before I knew that it was going to be the book of Acts, was the seven feasts of Israel. How convenient that it just naturally has worked its way into our lessons on the book of Acts. Because as we come to Acts chapter 2, the first words are, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they, that would be the 120 in the upper room, were all with one accord in one place. We are going to cover half of that verse today. We're really moving rapidly. Half of that verse, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, guess what? We need to learn all about Pentecost, don't we? And to learn about it, it's the fourth of seven feasts given by God in Leviticus 23. So I want you to open up to Leviticus chapter 23 and also Acts 2. So have your place finger in both places, mostly Leviticus 23 today. The Feast of Pentecost is the central feast of the seven God-appointed feasts that were given to Israel. And to study it, we are going to study all seven because they are beautiful and they are actually God's prophetic calendar. Did you know God has given mankind a calendar? He has. And we should be aware of it. I don't know if you've ever studied this important chapter before, but we're going to have a compact lesson today. Thank you, Lord. I was able to teach you on the seven feasts of Israel, but we're going to study all seven in one day. Woo! <laughs> so, here we go. We'll be here till midnight. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. All right, would you bow in prayer with me, please? Father God, we do thank you that we are able to assemble today after two weeks of being away, and thank you for the beautiful weather that you are about to give us. Thank you for the sunshine. We do thank you for the snow because it is so beautiful, and it does remind us that even though our sins were as crimson because of you and your shed blood and death on our behalf, they can be white as snow. I ask, Father, that you would grant with boldness my speech that I might speak forth your word I pray for freedom of utterance to open my mouth to proclaim the truth of your holy word. We thank you that your word does endure forever. Thank you, Father, that you did give mankind this prophetic calendar so we might know your plan and your purpose for us and that uh, you have sent your Savior according to that plan. And it is just so exciting to learn that you have kept nothing back from us, but you just want us to dig And learn these things for ourselves so they become our own and that we can know you better through them. I pray now that everyone would be able to focus, that there would be no hindering spirit present in this room. We could all focus on what your word has to say to us. For we pray in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, the Lord God Almighty, Jehovah God, instituted seven special feasts to be celebrated by the people of Israel. Those were given through Moses, Leviticus chapter 23, third book of the Bible, the Pentateuch, third book of the Pentateuch, 3,500 years ago. Do you realize that? These seven feasts were given to mankind 3,500 years ago. Wow. 
Now, although these feasts are spoken of hundreds of times throughout both the Old and the New Testaments, they were first revealed by God to Moses, who recorded the initial and sequential information about them in that 23rd chapter of Leviticus. These feasts, God said, belonged to him. They were his feasts. He said this, this is Leviticus 23, verse 2. Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them concerning the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are what? My feasts. These are my feasts. Now the word convocation appears ten times in that chapter. And it means an assembly. These are assemblies or calling together. These are assemblies calling together. And the word feasts, literally in Hebrew, means appointed times. These holy days, as they're also called over in Psalm 42.4. Did you ever think about where we get holiday? Holy days. These holy days were set apart by God as times of special meetings, gatherings, between himself and his assembled people. For spiritual emphasis, for holy purposes. They also serve to bring the people of God together and keep them connected. And that was particularly important after they were scattered among the nations in what is called the diaspora. The feasts were to be happy times of fellowship. You know, the Jews on three of those feasts were required, the males were required to come to Jerusalem. Actually, there were spring feasts and there were fall feasts. And I think a lot of them just came to Jerusalem, made that trip from wherever they came and stayed for the four spring feasts, stayed that whole time. And then they'd return for the fall feasts because you can see on your calendar, they're all together. T-Tree 1, T-Tree 10, T-Tree 15. They just stayed there for all three of them before they returned home. But these were to be times of fellowship among the Jewish people. Keep them connected as a unique people. Help them to fellowship Their fellowship was centered on their faith in God. They were also, according to Numbers 15.3, to be solemn times. They could have fun and be happy, but it was all about solemn, serious things regarding God. They were times when the Jewish people to remember what their great God had done for them in the past through their forefathers delivering them from Egypt and all sorts of wonderful things he had done for their forefathers in the past. They were to um, look forward in the future to what he had promised them. So they looked back to the past and thanked him. They looked forward to the promises of the future. And then they were to reflect on how well they were obeying and serving him in the present. So just like what we are supposed to do when we take the elements of the Lord's Supper, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to look back what he did for us on the cross. We look forward to the time when we will drink the cup with him in the millennial kingdom. And then we are to examine ourselves, aren't we? We're to be retrospective, prospective, and introspective. And that's what they were to do during these holidays. Jehovah God not only designed the sequence of these seven feasts and the activities of them and the offerings of the feasts, but he planned the timing of them on his calendar. They were to serve as prophetic pictures 
of the sequence and the timing and the significance of the major events of the perfect and complete, which is represented by the number seven. How many feasts were there? Seven. Okay, so they're to represent the sequence, the timing, the significance of the major events of the perfect and complete redemptive plan of the promised Savior Messiah. The Leviticus chapter 23 calendar begins with a feast that foreshadowed the coming death of the Messiah as the Passover lamb for the sins of all firstborns. And that was pictured in the feast of Passover. You see that's the first one on the prophetic calendar there, Nisan 14. So it all begins, God's prophetic calendar begins with a death. Isn't that ironic? It begins with a death. The death of the Passover lamb. And it ends with a feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, that pictures the establishment of the Messianic kingdom on earth. The Feast of Tabernacles celebrates the Messiah's kingdom when God will at long last tabernacle with man. For how long? A thousand years. So it all begins with a death, but it ends with eternal life in the presence of God. Because after the millennial kingdom, we go on into the eternal state where he will tabernacle with us forever. Now God, you know, God does not need a calendar. Does God need a calendar? No, he's outside of time. He does not need a calendar. But he prepared one for the human race and presented it to the young nation that he had chosen out of the belly button of the world. You know, Israel is in the middle of the land masses of the world. He said, I pick you, you know, because you're right there. The navel of the earth. To share. He presented this calendar to that young nation to share with the rest of the world. They were supposed to share everything about God with the rest of the world. They didn't do a very good job of sharing, did they? This Leviticus 23 calendar contains an orderly unfolding of the prophetic panorama of God's redemptive program for mankind. For all who will take the time to examine it carefully. How many people do you think on planet Earth examine carefully God's prophetic calendar given to them in Leviticus 23? How many do you think? Not very many. Isn't that sad? That is very, very sad. If the Jewish people had figured out the prophetic nature of their God-assigned feasts, they would have been looking for major events in the life of the true Messiah to take place during those special feasts. That's one way they could look for credentials of the true Messiah. How do we know if this guy is really the Messiah? Well, special events in his life should be taking place on the major feast days. Did they with the true Messiah? Yes, they surely did. In fact, do you know there was actually some rabbinic teaching that believed the Messiah would make his appearance known at the time of the Passover? Did Jesus Christ make his appearance known at the time of the Passover? Remember the week of the Passover, he arrived on Palm Sunday and officially announced himself, you know, that was his official presentation of himself as he came in on the donkey, fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy, that he was the true Messiah. They could have figured that out. Do you know that there are Jews today, Jewish um, Orthodox Jews, who still do believe that the true Messiah will appear 
at the time of Passover? One thing, however, that they did not know, and still do not know, is that (laughs) they did not know that the true Messiah would actually show himself at the time of Passover as the Passover lamb. That they didn't get. Too bad. Well, what is, and they could have known that. You know, all the way back in Genesis chapter 22, what did Abraham say to his son Isaac? God himself will provide the lamb. And what did John say, John the Baptist, when he introduced Jesus to the nation of Israel? Behold, the lamb of God, which comes to take away the sins of the world. They could have known this. What's really sad to see as we read through the four gospel accounts, which those of you who were with us have done, we've read through those gospel accounts, sad to see how degenerate these feasts had become by the time of Christ. They were no longer holy, solemn, joyful times of worship and fellowship with other believers that God had intended for them to be. One very, very sad truth was that the Gentiles of the world were not accompanying Jewish pilgrims in droves to Jerusalem to celebrate their conversion in faith to, of faith to Judaism. You know, weren't the Jews supposed to tell the rest of the world about God? So wouldn't we see when they came to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts, shouldn't there have been thousands of Gentile proselytes coming with them? Do we see that? No, we see a few, as we will in Acts chapter 2. There were some, but not as many by far as there should have been, because they had failed as the Lord's witnesses. Another sad fact is that the feasts had largely turned into cold, formal, ritualistic festivals of hypocrisy. At the time of both the Lord's first and his last ministry visits to Jerusalem, he was enraged, and rightfully so, at how the religious rulers in cahoots with the merchants and the money changers had used the feasts for their own personal profits. They had turned the temple of God into what? A den of thieves and a house of merchandise as they ripped off the people with exorbitantly priced sacrificial animals and excessive exchange rates. In fact, John, in the Gospel of John, was divinely inspired to not even refer to these feasts as the feasts of the Lord. Remember, he said they were his feasts? But John didn't call them feasts of the Lord. Instead, he called them, uh, for example, in John 2.13, the Jews' Passover. John 5.1, a feast of the Jews. John 7.2, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles. The religious rulers, as with just about everything else that they did, everything else they got their hands on, the the religious rulers of Israel had corrupted these feasts. Nonetheless, they were, and they still are, a panoramic picture of God's messianic calendar. The feasts began to demonstrate the fullness of their significance at the place of the skull. Strange place to begin, the calendar, place of the skull, the skull, <laughs> skull, Calvary. That's where it all began. That's where the calendar began. When the true Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus, died on what day? 
Nissan 14. Nissan is not a car. Well, it is, but N-I-S-A-N is the first month of the Jewish religious calendar. Nissan 14. It's comparable to late March, early April on our calendar. And the Lord Jesus died on that very day, which was the day of Passover, established by God. Look at it. Way back, 3,500 years ago, Leviticus 23, verse 5. Passover was to be celebrated on Nisan 14. Now, <clears throat> according to Exodus 12, 20, Nisan, as I said, was the first month of the Jewish calendar. They have a Jewish religious calendar and they have a Jewish civil calendar. They're different. <clears throat> but this, I'm talking about the religious calendar. And it was during this month that be- God began the revelation of the Messiah's redemptive program through the first three assigned feasts, all in the month of Nisan. You notice that? Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits are all in the month of Nisan. We clearly see the sovereignty of God in fulfilling crucial messianic events at his appointed times by the fact that the chief priests and the scribes had unanimously determined to kill Jesus. But the one time of the whole year they decided they would not kill him was what day? Passover. You remember that? Absolutely. That was in Mark 14, verses 1 and 2. Absolutely not. We will not kill him on the Passover. Too many people in town, and they'll be angry with us, and they might stone us to death for killing their beloved Jesus. But what happened? That was exactly the day they did kill him. Even though they determined not to kill him on that day, that was the day he died. Do you know this? Absolutely nothing could have altered God's prophetic calendar. He had assigned for the Passover lamb to die on Passover day, Nisan 14, and nothing could have changed it. Absolutely nothing. Same is going to be true with every one of these other feasts and the one we're coming to, Pentecost, in our study. Well, next on God's Messianic calendar, and this is Leviticus 23, 6, actually was the very next day, Nisan 15, began what was a week-long feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Went from the 15th to the 21st. The Lord Jesus, remember, had told his followers that he was the true manna from heaven. Manna did not have leaven in it. You know, when they went out in the wilderness and picked up, it didn't have any leaven in it. He told them that he was the bread of life, John chapter 6. He was sinless. There was absolutely no leaven in him whatsoever. This is a feast of unleavened bread. What does leaven symbolize in the scripture? Sin. Sin. The feast of unleavened bread was God's proclamation that the Messiah would be sinless and that when he was killed as the Passover lamb and his dead body lay in the grave, it would not see corruption. Why? Because he was sinless. This was a promise of God spoken through his servant David all the way back in Psalm 1610. That he would not leave his Holy One to see corruption. That his body would rise out of the grave. Now the third appointed 
um, feast is the feast of first fruits. It is not specified in the scripture as an actual calendar date. Do you see that on your chart? It simply was prescribed by God to be observed, notice, on the day after the Sabbath following the Passover. Now, in our Passion Week chronology, and I don't know if all of you were here when I explained why I am going with the Thursday crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ on the 14th of Nisan, but it was a Thursday. Some people, and I'm not going to make a big deal about this, but some people believe he, he, he was crucified on that Wednesday. Others say it was Friday. We went with Thursday, and I gave you a lot of reasons why. Um, one of the main ones is that because that literally means that he was in the grave three days and three nights. Otherwise, you have to have four days or you only have two nights. And Thursday is the best, really, I believe. Um, but if you miss that, we have that's the very first lesson in the Life of Christ 6 volume, new volume. The old volume 6 doesn't have it, but I added a chapter on the Passion Week chronology. But in our chronology, the Lord Jesus uh, died on Thursday, which was Passover, Nisan 14. He was in the tomb at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Nisan 15. Now, according to Leviticus 23, 7, the first day of a feast, the, the day of a feast or the first day of a week-long feast, such as Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Tabernacles, they both lasted for a week. The first day of those feasts, no matter what day it fell on, if it even fell on a Tuesday, that first day was considered a whole high holy day. It was a Sabbath in which nobody was to work. Okay, so we've got Jesus dying as Passover lamb on Thursday, the next day was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a Friday, but what else was it? It was a high holy day, and that actually is told to us in John 19.31, that the next day was a high holy day. And then what was the next day? Saturday. And it was the normal, regular Sabbath day. So what we have in our chronology is back-to-back Sabbaths. When nobody could go to the tomb, nobody could do any work, you know. So um, Friday was naturally followed by Saturday, back-to-back Sabbaths. It was then on Sunday, Nisan 17, according to our chronology, that the Feast of Firstfruits was celebrated. It was to be the day after the Sabbath following the Passover, according to Leviticus. So that made Sunday of the Passion Week the first day of the Feast of Firstfruits. And so, as God had long ordained for it to be, his son rose early on the morning of the Feast of Firstfruits because he was indeed the first fruit. First fruit of the what? Of the resurrection. Which happened to also be the third day of the feast, third day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Are you following me or do you need some coffee? We'll send you out the lesson this afternoon. Okay, that will help a lot. And I I promise you, as you read the lesson and look at this chart, it'll all fall together. Now, according to God's instructions to Israel in Leviticus 23, verses 9 to 14, on the Feast of Firstfruits, a sheaf, you know, they would go, they had a big field, they go to one area of the field and pick out some grain, 
and they'd go to another area and pick out a little bit of grain, and then, and then they'd put it all together. Can you picture a sheaf, you know, wrap it around with a, whatever, rope or something? They would present a sheaf of the first fruit of the cereal, cereal grain, which usually was barley, because that was the first grain to ripen. And that first sheaf of the grain was to be brought to the temple and waved before the Lord for acceptance. Before any Israelite was to bake bread for himself or for his family. And he probably didn't bake it. His wife probably baked it. (laughs) But before they were allowed to bake bread for themselves, they were to bring the first sheaf of their grain harvest to the Lord. What was God teaching his people? He was teaching his people that he must have first place in their lives. Matthew 6.33 Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Both the Lord's bodily resurrection and his ascension, where he was then seated at the right hand of God the Father, proved his Father's acceptance of his first fruit offering of himself. And just as the first sheep, sheaf of the harvest was a pledge that the remainder of the harvest would follow, So the Lord's resurrection and his presentation of himself to the Father was the pledge and the guarantee that the harvest of all believers in him would also follow. That's a guarantee for you and I. Interestingly, the Feast of First Fruits, and this is very interesting. Do you know that Jewish people celebrate all of these feasts except one today? Which one do they not celebrate today? First fruits. Oh my, that is interesting. They do not celebrate the Feast of First Fruits and have not since 70 AD. The only ritual of that appointed feast day that has survived to modern times is the counting of the days from the Feast of First Fruits to the Feast of Weeks which is 50 days. Because of God's commandment to count those seven weeks plus one day, that's in Leviticus 23, verses 15 and 16, the period of time between the third and the fourth feast is called by the Jewish people Sephira, which is the Hebrew word for counting. But apart from that counting, if you want to write that between first fruits and weeks, there's 50 days there. I didn't... No, if I don't, I didn't put that, yeah, 50 days after first fruit. I've got that there. But that's the counting. That is the only thing they do to celebrate the Feast of First Fruit is a count, a feast of, yeah, first fruit, is after it's over, they start their count to the Feast of Weeks. Now, why would this be? Why would they, of all this, you know, they celebrate all the others. Why do they not celebrate the Feast of First Fruits? Well, I don't think they know. But I know the reason, and it's because Israel yet to this day rejects the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. She has nothing to celebrate concerning the new resurrected life that his death on Passover and his burial on leavened bread provided for her. So she doesn't celebrate it because she doesn't believe it. She will celebrate it one day, but not yet. 
Well, moving on, the Feast of Weeks is the fourth and the middle of all the feasts. It's the fourth and final spring feast. By the way, the spring feasts, which are Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Weeks, picture for us the first coming of Christ, the fall feasts, trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles, picture the Lord's second coming. So the Feast of Weeks is the fourth and final of the spring feasts. It, just like the others, was established by God through Moses 3,500 years ago as a feast of celebration. And this was actually 1,500 years before we read about their celebration of it in Acts chapter 2. What we read about in Acts chapter 2 and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, that was 1,500 years after God had given them that feast to celebrate. So they had been celebrating it for 1,500 years before we get to its fulfillment in Acts 2.1. No specific date on the calendar is given for this feast except that it was to take place how many days after the Feast of first fruits? Fifty days. The reason is re- that it is referred to also as the Feast of Weeks in Exodus 34.22 or Shavuot, which is Hebrew, um, for weeks. That's the Hebrew word for weeks, and they call it Shavuot. But the reason it's called that is because of God's words in Leviticus 23.15. He said, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Seven Sabbaths is the equivalent of seven what? Weeks. Seven weeks. It's a week of weeks. They're to count a week of weeks. How much is a week of weeks? How many days? Seven times seven is 49. 49 days they're to count. And then it goes on and it says, And on the morrow after the seventh Sabbath, 50 days, God made sure they understood their math, 50 days, ye shall offer a new meat offering. Now, really, that is not a meat offering. It's a meal offering because it goes on to say it's supposed to be fine flour and they're made bread. So it's really a new meal offering. And they're to present that unto the Lord. Rabbinical writings call the Feast of Weeks Atzeret. There's a lot of names for this feast. They call it Atzeret because that means conclusion. Because this feast, the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot, or uh, the... I forget the other names, Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, all of this, it was viewed as the the conclusion of the Passover season and the seven-week-long spring harvest. However, it also initiated, it was the end of the spring harvest, but it initiated the beginning of the summer harvest. And the summer harvest was wheat. The spring harvest was barley, summer harvest was wheat. And that's why this central feast is also called, another name, Feast of Harvest. So it's the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, Atzeret, and the Feast of Harvest. But in the New Testament, it's referred to as Pentecost. Why? Because that's the Greek word, Pentecostos, is the Greek word meaning 50th. It's all very simple, but there's five different names, so it gets confusing. And I didn't write all those names. I just put Weeks, Pentecost, and Shavuot, which you might want to write in there, Harvest as well. And Atzeret, you don't have to worry about that one, okay? (laughs) 
It is in the notes, so you can look it up in the notes. But from now on, I'm probably going to refer to it as Pentecost. That just makes it easier. From Pentecost, which occurs early in the third month on the Jewish calendar, which is called the month of Sivan, to the Feast of Trumpets. Now look at weeks, and then look down at the Feast of Trumpets. Okay? Between those two, and now the Feast of Trumpets is the first of the three fall feasts, takes place in the seventh month, which is Tishri, between Pentecost and Trumpets, guess what? There are no God-assigned feasts for the Jewish people to celebrate. That was a a three-and-a-half-month interval of time, a waiting period for Israel before the commencement of the fall feasts. This is the biggest space of time on the Jewish calendar. God's prophetic calendar. Why do you think there is this interval? Well, it's because prophetically it pictures where you and I are today. We're living in the interval of God's prophetic calendar. Israel, as a nation and under her religious leadership, rejected her Messiah. God's complete redemptive program with her as a nation, which would culminate with his messianic kingdom on earth, headquartered in Jerusalem, his program with Israel had to be put on hold. It had to be postponed. Why? Because she cut off her own Messiah, as it says in Daniel 9.26. He was cut off, but not for himself, it says. He didn't die for himself, did he? He died for her, and he died for you and I. He died for us. On the day of Pentecost, the church was born from above by God the Holy Spirit. The church, you know, was an undisclosed mystery until the New Testament. Did the apostles understand about the church age? Did they understand about the church? No, not until... It was upon them. Look at verse 2. And suddenly... Oh, Acts. I'll read Acts 2, too, because you're over in Leviticus. It says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That's when the church was born. Before that, they really didn't know about the church. Nobody knew about the church. It was an undisclosed mystery. The summertime interval between the spring and the fall feast prophetically pictures the church age. And when does that interval end? With what feast? Trumpets. Oh, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? (laughs) That important feast, the Feast of Trumpets, is the fifth of seven Five is God's number for gra- of grace, isn't it? That feast looks to the Lord's return. It pictures prophetically the Lord's return at his second coming, which will be in two phases. First, Christ will come for his church. Instead of the Spirit descending to give birth to the church, 
as on the Feast of Pentecost, this next time it will be Christ himself descending from heaven to meet his church, his bride, in the air. And it's going to come just as suddenly as the church was born, the church is going to be out of here, isn't it? Isn't she, I should say. Church is a she because she's a bride. I don't know how men feel about that, you know. My husband doesn't like being called a bride. <laughs> Too bad. Get used to it. Anyway, um, did you know that on the Feast of Trumpets, two silver trumpets were blown in Israel to celebrate that feast? Two silver trumpets. Well, the first trumpet, it's, is given to us in First Thessalonians 4, verse 16 and 17. You all know it. This is when the church is going to be raptured out of here. It says, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with what? The trump of God. First silver trumpet. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. Who's them? In the clouds. Those who have already preceded us in death and are in their graves, they precede us who are living because they have six feet further to go. So they get a head start. All right? And meet them together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Well, following then the seven years of tribulation on earth, you can read about all that in Revelation chapter 6 to 19, there is going to be the sound. After that tribulation, there is going to be, when God is working with Israel again, at the end of those seven years, there's going to be another special trumpet. Second silver trumpet is blown, and this one is for Israel. It will be the call for the regathering of the scattered Jewish remnant. After the Antichrist, there's only going to be one-third of the Jewish people left on planet Earth, or at least the ones in Israel, according to Zechariah. Anyway, he's going to, the, they're, they're going to be gathered from all around the world back to Israel. The Lord spoke of this gathering of his people in the Olivet Discourse. Remember this? Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31. It says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather his elect from the four winds. That is going to be the full and the final answer to the Feast of Trumpets, which the Jewish people call Rosh Hashanah. You've heard of that, right? It occurs in September sometime. Tishri 1. Then, oh my, when the Son of Man comes in the clouds... Every eye will see him. What a marvelous, marvelous day for Israel that is going to be when she finally, just like Joseph's brothers, finally recognizes the one who is the bread of life, her Messiah. She will behold him in faith at the second phase of the second coming called his return. When he visibly returns to earth, Revelation 19. Remember when he ascended from the Mount of Olives and that two holy messengers said, this same Jesus will return to that same place bodily? That's what we're talking about. It says in Revelation 1-7, every eye will behold him as he descends bodily to the Mount of Olives. And that includes the nation who pierced him. 
and she will mourn and she will weep with genuine repentance for the one that she so long ago rejected. Zechariah 12, verses 10 to 14. And she will receive him to rule over her as Lord and Savior and Messiah. It will be at that time when Israel repents, it will be the fulfillment of, for Israel, finally, of Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. You know, once a year they have the Day of Atonement when the Jewish people were covered, their sins were covered. Finally, at long last, she will be covered. Yom means day, Kippur means cover. Finally, she will be covered with the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts of her heart. And all Israel shall be saved, it says in Romans 11.26. And then what will we go into? Well, then they will go into the last feast, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, which looks forward to when the Lord will set up his messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom for 1,000 years, when he will tabernacle with man. That will be the fulfillment of tabernacles, or Sukkot, which the Jews call it. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but is that right? Anybody know? She's not here today to crack me, so it's Sukkot. <laughs> It says in um, Revelation 21.3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. That will be the fulfillment of tabernacles. You know, all three of the fall feasts are yet future, aren't they? They're yet future, because we're in the interval. We're in the church age. So now, we've covered those real quickly. Let's return to the subject of the last spring feast which was laid out by God in Leviticus 23, and we ask ourselves, okay, the spring feasts are all past tense from where we are, right? So was there a fulfillment for the Feast of Pentecost? Was there a fulfillment of it? And the answer is absolutely, and it is rather clear from Acts chapter 2. You can go now to Acts chapter 2. On the very day of this celebration in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit came down from heaven and baptized the early believers in Christ into his body, the church. This is what, if you want to write in your Bible right next to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, this is really, really what we could call the birthday of the church. This is the birthday of the church. Now, pre... I want you to please realize that the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower these early believers on Pentecost, 50 days after the Lord's resurrection on the Feast of First Fruits, was not in response to any activity or prayer on their part. When the Holy Spirit came, it didn't matter what those believers were doing at the time. Actually, we find out they were sitting, which means they weren't praying because their normal prayer position was, was either kneeling or standing. But they're sitting. I don't know, maybe they were having breakfast, but they're sitting in the house, it tells us. These were already saved people. We've talked about this, haven't we? Did I? Or was that the other Bible study? I don't know. These were already saved people. You know, if they died before the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where would they have gone, the 120? Heaven or hell? They would have gone to heaven. They were already saved people. Technically, they were Old Testament saints until the moment 
on the day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit baptized them into the church. They went up to the upper room as Old Testament saints. Guess what? They came down from the upper room as New Testament saints. You see, there had to be a transition somewhere, didn't there? And this is it. This is transition. From that point on, the Holy Spirit baptizes an individual into the body of Christ at the moment of his or her salvation. This was just transitional. You can't say, well, they were saved and then later they had a filling of the Holy Spirit. No, 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 no. From now on, it's different. The moment you're saved, you receive the Holy Spirit and you're baptized into the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit's arrival to birth the church was completely and utterly based on a fulfillment of the long-before-divinely-established seven-feast calendar of Leviticus chapter 23. Do you know that the Holy Spirit would have been poured out on those believers on that day, whether they asked for it or not? They could have been sitting there arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom. They weren't. They were in one accord. They stayed in one accord as they had been before when they elected Matthias. Remember when we, homo themodon, one mind, one heart. They're one, one mind, one heart, and they're in one location. They're united. But the Holy Spirit would have been poured out on them that day, no matter what they were doing. If they were at the fresh market, the Holy Spirit would have been poured out on them. Because that was in accordance to God's divinely planned calendar. Just like Jesus would have died on the Passover, no matter what the religious leaders decided. Do you get it? So it wasn't according to anything those people were doing that they received the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.1 contains Luke's inspired words where he said, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Why did he include the word fully, do you think? Why couldn't he just have said, and when the day of Pentecost was come? I mean, they'd been celebrating it for 1,500 years. So why does he say, when the day of Pentecost was fully come? Well, because that indicates the fulfillment, finally, of God's prophetic calendar of Leviticus 23. It was finally realized. The whole meaning for Pentecost was finally realized on this day. It's just like Galatians 4.4 where it said, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. Here we do it again. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his spirit. You got it. It was exactly seven weeks, 49 days, plus one, the 50th, after the Feast of First Fruits, the very day of the Lord's resurrection. 50 days after the Lord's resurrection. You know, if any of the feasts, have you ever thought about this? If any of the feasts in Leviticus 23 had been given in a different order, we could dismiss the divine inspiration of the scripture. Why? Well, because Passover had to come before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because Christ had to die as the Passover lamb before his sinless unleavened body could then be buried. The Feast of Unleavened Bread had to come before the Feast of Firstfruits, for the Lord had to be buried before he then rose from the tomb as the firstfruits of the resurrection. Firstfruits had to precede Pentecost because the Lord Jesus had to ascend to heaven before he sent the Holy Spirit. And he said that himself, John seven thirty nine. The Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So, here's a question. Leviticus 23, 16 and 17 says that on the 50th day after the Feast of Firstfruits, a new meal 
offering consisting of two wave loaves. Okay, go back to Leviticus 23. I'm sorry. (laughs) It says, verses 16, 17, that a new meal offering consisting of two wave loaves. That's funny. Wave loaves. Of wheat bread baked with leaven was to be brought before the Lord. All right, two wave loaves brought before the Lord. They were to be waved. That's what that means. They weren't to be burned on the altar. They were to be waved. Hi there. (laughs) Waved before the Lord. So, let's examine this. First of all, what did the new meal offering, made of fine flour, baked with leaven, what was that offering to picture prophetically? It pictured, it couldn't picture Christ, because does he have leaven? No. Is he two persons? Two loaves? No, it pictured the church. What was born on the day of Pentecost? The church. For one thing, the church was new. It was a complete mystery. Not revealed until the New Testament. I told you that. It's a mystery. It's a new thing. You know what it says in Ephesians 3, 6? This is new. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. What? You know, the Jews are going, what? That Gentiles, fellow heirs? That's new. Shouldn't have been new in their thinking, but that was new. It was really new that it goes on and says, and of the same body. Of the same body. That's a, that's, a new, that's a new offering. Gentiles and Jews is one body. The two loaves represent the two component parts of the church. What does the church consist of? Jews and Gentiles. There are no other people. You're either Jewish or you're a Gentile. That's it. Church consists of both. Who by their faith in the true bread of life <clears throat> are reconciled by God in one body. Read Ephesians 2, verses 3 to 8 when you get home. Even though, even though they are two groups of people, two distinct groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, guess what? They are presented before God as one. The two loaves of the Pentecost offering, when they made those loaves to offer, they were needed. You know how you put all the ingredients in, okay, your flour and oil, Oil pictures the Holy Spirit, by the way, and they put in leaven, um, and then they kneaded it. You know? They kneaded their bread, and then they baked it. They, they did that separately. Each loaf was, was mixed and kneaded and baked separately. And, of course, this was the day before Pentecost because they weren't allowed to cook on the day of because it was a um, high Sabbath. <clears throat> and so they were baked Separately, made and baked separately, but waved together. Each loaf, and this is interesting, each loaf was huge. Two feet long. Is that about right? About two feet long and one foot wide. And that's a big loaf of bread, isn't it, ladies? <laughs> they, they baked these big loaves, two of them, and then what they would do is they'd, on each corner of the loaf, they would make a three-inch high horn. They'd pull up that dough and make a horn. And that was to symbolize or to, um, you know, be a picture of the four horns on the bronze altar, Exodus 27.2. Those four horns served as a place of mercy. 
If you were in great trouble and you were going to be stoned to death, if you could somehow get into the holy place and grab hold of the horns of that altar, they were to be merciful to you and let you go. Now, although those two breads, loaves of bread, were baked separately, the two loaves were waved before the Lord in the temple as one offering. The priest would actually climb a ladder. I don't know if you've seen a picture of the bronze altar. It was not inside the holy place. It was right outside the holy place in front of it. It was huge. It was massive. And a priest would actually have to climb a ladder to get up on top of it. He would climb up on top of that altar. Had to be careful. Because that's where they burned a lot of sacrifice. And he stood, and also there were great big huge horns on each corner. And he would stand up there with one of those two loaves in each hand under his, under his palms of his hands. You know, two foot long loaves of bread. And here is what he would do. He would wave it by going with the loaves forward and back. He's facing the holy place, you know, where God is supposed to be. Uh, let's see, what did I do? Forward and backward and up and down. And when he did that, what was he forming? Forward and backward and up and down. Unbeknownst to him, he was making the, form, the, the sign of a cross. So why was there leaven to be placed in these two loaves? That was very unusual because leaven symbolizes sin and most of the offerings did not have leaven in them. Well, I have bad news for you. The leaven was placed in the two loaves because redeemed people of the church are still stuck with the inherited sin nature of our flesh. Have you noticed that? <clears throat> Even though we are positionally, positionally we are righteous in, to God because he sees us in Christ. But practically, in our daily practice, are we sinless? Or do we all have a little bit of leaven in, them, in us? <laughs> Or a lot of leaven in us. <laughs> and if you disagree with me, if you somehow think that you have reached perfection, or that you can reach perfection in this life, in, in your flesh, then I have even more bad news for you. You have really deceived yourself. And I'm not just saying that on my own. I have scripture to back me up. 1 John 1.8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. There's something else that is highly significant in regard to the Feast of Pentecost. In Exodus 19.1. Go back now to the past time of the Passover. Okay, Israel is in bondage to Egypt, right? They're in bondage as slaves in Egypt. Exodus 19.1. Um, and they, you know, because of the, the last miracle of God and the, the death of the uh, firstborns who are not covered with the blood of the Passover lamb on the, the doorposts and the lintels of their, their home, um, all the firstborns die. So when that happens, the Egyptians really want to get rid of the Israelites. Pharaoh says, finally, you know, you can go. Get out of here. And they had to get out of there fast. They didn't even have time for their bread to rise. So God said, don't put leaven in it. Just take your matzah crackers and get out of here. (laughs) All right. So they leave in the great exodus right after Passover. Maybe a day or two to get all their belongings together. And the the Egyptians gave them a lot of jewels and, and money. 
you know, because they just really wanted him to get out of there. Go, go. Um, so maybe a day or two, and they, and they have the great exodus. Well, do you know that according to Exodus 19, they arrived, after their exodus, they arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai in the first day of the third month of their calendar, which would be the month of Sivan. And then you, you go through that whole chapter and you find out that, you know, God spoke to them and said for three days, wait for three days, and then Moses goes up and everything. Anyhow, to make a long story short, they, the Jews to this day celebrate on the Feast of Weeks what we call Pentecost or Shavuot. They celebrate that that was the day, 50 days after the Exodus, when God met with them from Mount Sinai and gave them the law. The Jewish rabbis have declared, and this is in Shabbat 86b and Jubilees 619, they have declared that Shavuot or Pentecost was the day that God gave the Torah. God gave Israelites the law. So they declare that this is the birthday of Judaism. And they celebrate it on the same day we celebrate the birth of the church. But we have a problem. We don't celebrate the birth. Why do we not celebrate the birth of the church? Have you ever thought about that? We celebrate, you know, Passover and why don't we celebrate the birth of the church? Don't you think we should have a great big birthday party for the birth of the church? I wonder why we don't. But they celebrate the giving of the law. Isn't that fascinating? The very same day. They say it was 50 days after they left in the Exodus. Fascinating. Do you remember when Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he was having a conversation with Moses and Elijah? And what were they talking about? His decease, which was actually the word Exodus. His exodus. His, he was looking forward to his resurrection. His exodus back up to heaven. Into the promised land, so to speak. It's also, are you getting? It's also perfect. They celebrate the giving of the old covenant. At the same time, we should be celebrating the giving of the new covenant. One was all about law. One is all about grace. One was the birth of Israel, the birth of Judaism. Ours is the birth of the church, all on the same exact day. God orchestrated it that way. In fact, today when the Jews celebrate Shavuot, Pentecost, it's customary for them to bake two loaves of challah bread, they call it, to represent not only the two wave loaves of bread that were once offered in the temple, And they don't have a temple anymore, but they still make the two loaves. But they say, do you think when they do that today, that they say this represents the church (laughs) made of Jews and Gentiles? No. They say that it represents the two tablets of the law received on Mount Sinai. Now, another custom is for the Jewish people to eat dairy foods during Shavuot. The rabbis say that this serves to remind them that the giving of the law and the words of scripture are like milk and honey to the soul. So they eat cheesecakes and they eat cheese, cheese uh, blintzes and they eat cheese kreplach. What's that? Cheese kreplach. 
know, they just stuff their arteries with cheese, don't they? <laughs> Kreplach are um, dough pockets that are shaped as triangles, and they, they fill them with cheese. Kreplach is a traditional Shavuot food, triangular in, in, in shape. And the rabbis give the reason for why Kreplach are triangular. And here is their reason. Listen to this. They say, blessed be the merciful one who gave the threefold law, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, to a people made of three classes, priests, Levites, and the common people, the Israelites, through a third-born child. Who's that? Miriam, Aaron, Moses, in the third month, Sivan. Oh, that's pretty neat, isn't it? But I tweaked it. I actually made, I expanded it. You know I always expand everything. Here's, here's my version. They said, blessed be the merciful one. Here's what I say. Blessed be the merciful triune God who gave the threefold law to a threefold people through a third-born son in the third month and sent the third person of the Godhead on this day to give birth to a third people group. Third people group, first time ever. You had Jews and you had Gentiles, and now you had a new nation, a holy nation, the church. You like that? You like my tweak? Something else I want to draw your attention to in scripture is the readings of the Jews for the Feast of Weeks. And these readings were established back in ancient times, so we know with assurity that these were the readings on the morning of the day of Pentecost written about in Acts chapter 2. Because they read these readings for years and years and years. So early in the morning on the day of Pentecost, Shavuot, there would be a chanter. You know, first the the priest would offer the, the loaves of bread. He would wave them before the Lord. And there would be a chanter who recited these verses. And I can picture this because I grew up in a Greek Orthodox church and we didn't have a choir. We had a man who chanted. And it was kind of monotonous and he would in Greek his verses and I didn't understand any of it and it was really boring. But um, that's what they would do. They would chant the verses and they would come from Ezekiel. I've got the passages in your notes, one through... Uh, 28 in Ezekiel 3, some verses in Ezekiel chapter 3. They'd also read some verses from Habakkuk. Now, I'm not going to give all the verses that the guy would chant, but here's some of them, okay? Some of them. Now, think of these verses in light of what happened that day. Ezekiel 1.4 says this. Ezekiel is speaking. And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself and a brightness was about it and out of the midst thereof as the color of amber. What's amber? Kind of orangish red, the color of fire. Out of the midst of the fire. 
Ezekiel 3.12 says, I heard behind me a voice of a great rushing, saying, Blessed be the glory of the Lord from his place. That was some of the verses they would read. Now let me read Acts 2, verses 2 and 3. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing, exact same words, a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. And it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All right, now, another place they would read from on that morning was from Habakkuk. And one of the passages begins with these words, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. O Lord, I have heard thy report. You could even put in there, in my mother tongue. I have heard thy report and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In wrath, remember mercy. Now look with me at verses, um, start at verse 8. And how hear we, these are the people that heard them speaking in all their tongues. How hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born. And then it lists all the people that are there, all the different places. And look down at verse 11, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Look at uh, verses 37 to 41. Now here's the part where it said, in wrath, remember mercy. Did the Jewish people deserve God's wrath for what they had done to his son? Yes, but does he remember mercy? Well, let's read about it, starting in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. What did they hear? Well, Peter had just said in the verse before, I should have started with verse 36. He said, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And then it goes on and says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off. Who is that? Who's a, who was afar off at that time? The Gentiles, you and I, all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. In wrath, remember mercy, and God surely, surely did. It was also a custom, I'm almost done, it was also a custom on the Feast of Pentecost to read from the book of Ruth. They still do that in the synagogues. One reason for this is that the story of Ruth and Boaz took place at the beginning of the wheat harvest, the Feast of Weeks. Also, if you remember, Ruth was a Moabitess. What does that mean? Yeah, she came from Moab, but she was not Jewish. She was a Gentile. And she willingly put her faith in the true God of Israel. She was a Gentile who embraced God's law and God's promises, particularly his promise concerning a coming 
coming kinsman redeemer, the great fulfiller of the type who was given in Boaz. Boaz was a type of Christ, who is our kinsman redeemer. She embraced faith in him. The marriage of Ruth and Boaz was the joining together of a Jew and a Gentile, just like the church. And the two became one flesh, one body. And now we have the setting of the stage for what we read about in Acts chapter 2 concerning the Feast of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the 120 with one accord who were gathered in one place. As I said, unified in heart and in mind and unified in location. They had, these people had already received the first promise of the Father, which was the promised seed of the woman. All the way back, Genesis 3.15. They had already received that promise. They had received the Lord Jesus Christ, their Savior. And now they are obediently waiting for the second promise of the Father, who would be the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2.1, which is likely now just a few days after their pre-church business meeting, and the selection of Matthias to fill the vacancy in the apostolate that was left by Judas Iscariot. They're in this room just a few days after that meeting, and they are waiting. And all of a sudden, what happens? Their wait abruptly comes to an end. You know, that's what's going to happen with you and I. We're waiting, aren't we? We're waiting and we're waiting, and we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And one day we might just be sitting here like they were sitting in the house. We're sitting here, and all of a sudden, bam, we're going to be gone. Just that suddenly. The church began, and it will end just like that. But suddenly it comes to an end. And this reminds me of, you know, they were in the same room when just as suddenly the resurrected Christ appeared in their midst. On Resurrection Sunday afternoon. Remember? They're standing there talking to the two on the road to Emmaus. And they're hearing about how the Lord had appeared to Peter. And then all of a sudden, there he is in the very midst of them. Well now, 50 days later, there was suddenly another person of the Godhead with them in that room. With them. And above them. And glory be in them. The day of Pentecost was fully come. Let's pray. Father God, you are truly the wise, all wise, all powerful, all knowing God that your word proclaims you to be. How orderly and how precisely you 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 are in this calendar of events that you have given to us, how graciously loving you are to have provided us with answers to everything that we need to know about existence, why we're here, about your plan, your program, your person, your son, the Holy Spirit, and all the wondrous things that you have not only in this life, but in the life to come when we willingly turn to Christ for our salvation. We offer up our cup, Lord, and we ask that you fill it up with your presence and with your empowerment 
so that we may be all that you intend for us to be. I thank you that you never give up on us. No matter how imperfect we are, how many times we fail and falter, you do not give up on us. Please continue working in every one of us, in us and through us, producing a supernatural joy and peace and praise in our hearts that others see and desire to have. Help us to each focus on the fact that you have, you indeed have a divine calendar and its events will be fulfilled and all the things of this life will pass away. May we ever keep that in our minds. Just as suddenly as the Spirit descended on Pentecost, we could ascend to meet Christ in the air. So I ask that we would each be found ready and not ashamed at your coming. For we ask in your name. Amen.